Vision, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism, the dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science infuse into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature pathways of fear, vampire allergies, and getting fracked. But first up, here's the news with Patrick Ruby. Peanuts passed on in blood transfusions, in a story by ABC Science. If you eat peanuts before you give blood, it can cause an allergic reaction in the person you're giving blood to. A case report written by Dr Johannes Jacobs of Radboud University Nijmegen Medical Centre in the Netherlands describes just such a reaction in a six-year-old boy. The six-year-old boy had acute lymphoblastic leukaemia and needed a blood transfusion as part of his treatment. The blood transfusion was made from the blood of five different donors, and three of these donors had eaten peanuts the night before the donation. The boy developed a rash, swelling, low blood pressure and difficulty breathing after the transfusion. He had to be resuscitated with adrenaline. The reason for his sudden reaction was picked up when his mother recalled he'd had a similar reaction to eating peanuts when he was one year old. The medical team were then able to trace the source of the reaction to the three donors. This type of scenario has been hypothesised in previous literature, but this is the first clinical report of it. The researchers claim this sort of reaction might explain... The researchers claim this sort of reaction might explain some of the bad reactions to previous transfusions. And whilst it shouldn't change any immediate donor practices, they should be more thoroughly recorded in the future. The research was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So it seems that one man's snack could be another man's sickness. Rogue Planets Without a Star In a story by ABC Science Planets may exist outside the orbits of stars. Two teams of scientists have been observing an area known as the galactic bulge of the Milky Way. They were able to detect objects outside of the orbits of stars through a technique known as gravitational microlensing, which was first theorised by Albert Einstein. In this technique, the object of interest is a foreground object which acts as a lens to magnify a known star as it passes behind its gravitational field. By calculating the time of magnification, they're able to work out the mass of the foreground object. Using these techniques, the research team was able to detect 10 Jupiter-sized objects presumed to be planets, that didn't appear to be orbiting any star. Based on the frequency of the finding, they concluded that there might be as much as twice as many free-floating planets as there are stars out there. 
The scientists have hypothesized these planets would have formed in protoplanetary disks of molecular gas and dust, and then scattered into distant orbits once they had formed. What the planets are made of, and what orbits, if any, that they follow, remains unknown. The research has been published in the Journal of Nature, so it seems that Einstein's theories are still making discoveries. I guess now doctors need to know if you're allergic before they give you a transfusion if you're at an accident. Well, it's one of the things that you ask. You ask a lot of the time before someone goes in for things like an anaesthetic if they're allergic to anything because that's another area where it can be quite bad if you have an allergic reaction on the middle of the operating table to an anaesthetic. But isn't this... But when you say allergic to anything, doesn't this now mean anything? Because you wouldn't normally expect to ask about food allergies when you're going in for an operation? You, uh, you can do. You can still ask about food allergies and things like that because uh, in specific circumstances, allergies to specific proteins might interact with some of the anaesthetics that they give you. So propofol, as an example, uses uh, lecithin, which is an egg protein derivative, uh, which very, very, very rarely can induce a reaction in someone who's already got an allergy to that sort of thing. Allergies themselves are very interesting to look at in terms of the cause. They're actually an overreactivity of your immune system. So if you're a a person like me who unfortunately suffers from a bit of hay fever now and then, you've got a hypercharged immune system which is basically ready to recognize anything foreign, which you can label as an allergen, and mount an immune reaction to it. It's a massive cascade involving all sorts of immune cells like mast cells and IgE receptors, which are specific types of immunoglobulins made by B cells and all these weird and wonderful things in your immune system. And once you start that cascade, you start the the process of allergy, which in mild forms means you start sneezing and you get stuffed up noses and you get itchy eyes as in hay fever but you can also get eczema that's a form of allergy asthma as well and in really severe forms like what this young boy experienced you get anaphylaxis which is a drop in your blood pressure a shift of fluid out of your blood into your surrounding tissues difficulty breathing because you're getting bronchoconstriction going on and you're you're getting um fluid going out of your system I can feel it all now. Rash. Yeah, it's a very vivid picture, isn't it? (laughs) Um, So this also seems to be an indication that peanut allergies are just really ramping up in Australia, like everywhere. Well, I believe the incidence of peanut allergies has risen. A lot of people are trying to 
figure out what the reason behind this may be. Um, and we do know bits and pieces of the story of what causes allergies or what's associated with allergies at least, but we still don't know the exact core of it. I mean, it runs tends to run in families, so you'll see people with certain genetic traits will get it. And one of the things we learn about uh, when we're studying medicine is atopy and the atopic triad. So in families, things like asthma eczema and hay fever hmm. can run in a family. But the thing is, for me, is it that peanut allergies are becoming more common or are they just getting better reported? It could be either of those. I, I'm afraid I don't have a straight answer. No, it's just on one of those one. strange things because there seem to be a lot more stories about children mm. with peanut allergies. So there's children at school yep. who've had peanut butter fed to them and had disaster, whereas it doesn't seem like it used to be a very common or even ever reported thing. Like it's a very, it seems to be just in the last five years or so. Yeah, and there's several reasons that could explain that. Like it could be, like you said, that it may have been underreported and that people might not have known what it was back in in the the Stone Age before it became (laughs) in the Stone Age, or the not quite so Stone Age, the the age of underreporting or underrecognition. One of the popular theories that has been used recently is the hygiene hypothesis, which is saying that our immune system has become supercharged because there are no bugs anymore to test them because we're too clean. But isn't that contradictory? Surely it's going to be supercharged because there's too many rather than because there's not enough. Well, when I say supercharged, I mean that because it hasn't been tested on the bugs out there because of the the fact that we've managed to improve sanitation, improve Mm -hmm. hygiene and vaccinate, the immune system tends to overreact with what are essentially benign allergens or benign environmental proteins. But that seems rather unfair. So what you're saying is in the past we used to get sick because there were things to make us sick. Yeah. And now we get sick because there's not things to make us get sick. Because our immune system is basically playing up because it's got not much to do. So when it's got a lot to do, we get sick. And when it's got not a lot to do, we get sick. <laughs> That's a no-win situation It doesn't right sound there. very fair at all, doesn't it? But like I said, it's, it's one of the hypotheses um, which mm. may go into it explaining it, but it doesn't give a be-all and end-all answer. And I never felt as good as how I do right now Except for maybe when I think about how I felt that day When I felt the way that I do right now, right now I feel fantastic And I never felt as good as how I do right now Except for maybe when I think about how I felt that day When I felt the way that I do right now, right now, right now Next, Dr. Tim Breedy of the Queensland Brain Institute, describes his research into the brain pathways of fear memory. Remarkable experiments in the rat laboratory suggest promising treatments for conditions such as debilitating anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder. Mick Cavazzini reports. 
Among the waves of veterans returning from war zones in Iraq and Afghanistan, up to a quarter will demonstrate the crippling effects of post-traumatic stress disorder. Imagine some innocuous event in your daily life, such as the sound of a car backfiring, suddenly throwing you into a state of panic. Your pulse races, your hairs stand on end, and you're overcome by nightmarish flashbacks. PTSD originates from events that involve physical or emotional trauma. It is widely diagnosed not just among war veterans, but also victims of abuse or of horrifying natural disasters. Although the symptoms may take months to emerge, they can persist for a person's lifetime if no therapy is undertaken. Normally, the memories of a fearful event stimulate us to prepare for dangerous situations that might reoccur, a classic adrenaline rush that can increase our chances of escape from a predator. But in the case of anxiety disorders such as PTSD, the mere suggestion of the original stressor causes the body to enter this fight-or-flight mode, however inappropriate to the current scenario. The brain pathways involved in fear memory can be studied experimentally by observing rat behaviour. Although rats can't tell us what emotions they're feeling, they freeze in fear when they experience an alarming stimulus such as a mild electric shock from the floor of the testing cage. When this foot shock is paired a number of times with a neutral stimulus, like an auditory tone, the rat learns that one predicts the other. I asked Dr Timothy Breedy, a neuroscientist at the Queensland Brain Institute, to describe this fear conditioning model in more detail. That contingent pairing of the sound and the foot shock results in a fear response, which, interestingly enough, can incubate and sensitize over time very similar to what happens in people with phobia. A single tone shock or a tone foot shock pairing can actually be present in the animal for the entire lifetime, and the animal will still show a behavioral defensive response when you present them with that sound again mm -hmm. at a later time. In these conditioning experiments, the shock stimulus and the sound stimulus initially activate different sensory pathways but the inputs eventually converge onto a number of brain centres so that the two stimuli become associated into a single memory pattern. In an everyday example of associative memory, you might find that the smell of baking bread evokes childhood memories of your grandmother's living room. This one cue activates the entire pattern of sensory associations that were encoded, live with images and sounds. In anxiety disorders, however, the highly charged physiological and emotional sensations dominate this pattern and are recalled with vivid intensity at later times. But fortunately for sufferers, the powerful mental association between the contextual cues and the feelings of fear can sometimes be broken by so-called extinction training. The extinction of conditioned fear is what we call an explicit model for the treatment of fear-related anxiety disorders. So in a doctor's clinic, it's also known as uh, exposure therapy. And that's basically repeated exposure um, to the aversive stimulus, that sound, but without an aversive consequence, without negative consequence. So there's no, no shock anymore. So mm -hmm. the animal just hears the sound repeatedly over time, and after a while they learn that the sound doesn't predict a negative consequence, and subsequently their fear response diminishes over time. While the term extinction suggests that the fear memory is being erased or overwritten, this is in fact not the case. The sensations of fear depend first on an ancient brain centre called the amygdala, and conditioned memories are encoded in its projections to the prefrontal cortex. 
This region is a more recently evolved higher brain centre said to be responsible for decision making. Dr Breedy and others have found that extinction memory is recorded in parallel brain pathways between subregions of the amygdala and prefrontal cortex, suggesting that you really do have to learn to forget that a stimulus ever predicted danger in the first place. In order to dissect the role of these pathways, Dr Breedy and his colleague Mark Barad used a drug called sodium valproate, which targets a very specific group of enzymes involved in DNA folding. The drug enhances the expression of genes that support learning, but only in those brain cells that are activated by the training conditions. So what you have are two competing anatomical pathways. One supports fear, one supports extinction. And these two are constantly competing with one another to control behavior. So what we did was we injected the uh, sodium valproate into the gut of the animal two hours prior to any learning. And then we um, gave them a very, very basic extinction training protocol, which normally induces no long-term extinction. What you would see a week later normally is just no extinction memory. The animals would freeze the exact same way or they'd show the same fear response as if they had never received any extinction training. But training in the presence of sodium valproate actually led to a persistent decrease in the fear response. The animal's extinction memory was strengthened. This result provides great hope for human sufferers of anxiety disorders undergoing exposure therapy. For treating post-traumatic stress disorder, at least 10 appointments with a therapist are typically required. But this expensive and stressful process is successful in only 50% of patients. Dr. Breedy's research on extinction training in rats suggests that effective treatment outcomes in humans might be achieved by milder and shorter therapy regimes combined with a drug such as sodium valproate. What happens in the doctor's office is the doctor asks the person with the phobia or the stress disorder to remember those fear-evoking moments. And when that happens, the brain goes through a process called reconsolidation, where the memory for fear actually temporarily becomes destabilized. But what we could do in the doctor's office is reactivate the memory, give the compound, and then begin the extinction process. So you, not only do you destabilize the original fear, but then you start the learning of the neutral consequences of the memory, and that will serve to strengthen the therapeutic outcome of exposure therapy. The low dosages of sodium valproate used in Dr. Breedy's study bode well for the drug's potential safety in human patients. In fact, sodium valproate is already clinically approved as an anticonvulsant, so it might not be too long before it is taken up in clinical trials combined with cognitive therapy. Dr. Breedy's continuing research is expected to demonstrate how memory can be dissected even further by drugs precisely targeting different neural pathways. He reviews recent advances in this field in the April issue of the journal Neurobiology of Learning and Memory. I'm Mick Cavassini for Diffusion on 2SER. That was Tim Breedy describing how post-traumatic stress disorder might in future be effectively treated by combining talking therapy with drugs that target the pathways of fear memory. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SCR, and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Efficiency is in a sorry state. The government now accepts it.
guidelines. Now that's okay. We don't mind if the government has its fair say. But too much control now that just gets in the way. There's a lot in the news about coal seam gas is the new gold. Now, there was a, an American documentary called Gasland about coal seam gas mining, known as fracking, in the US. <laughs> and what they do is they find a coal seam, and in the coal seam, they don't mine the coal. Instead, they dig a hole, and then they put down some explosives and put little cracks all through the big, long hole, and out comes all this gas that was trapped, methane gas. Mm-hmm. And instead of doing it in remote areas where no one will care terribly much, they want to do it under farms. They did it on farmland in the US, and they also want to do it in towns as well, because that's where the gas is. And after mm-hmm. all, if there's something valuable in the ground, it would be a sin not to dig it up. <laughs> well, we've had... Uh similar sort of news with coal seam gas in Australia. Um, And just recently, um, last week, there was some opposition to the current plans of how these areas are used and how these areas are selected. And it was uh, Dr John Williams, who's the head of the New South Wales Natural Resources Commission, um, in an article I'm reading, uh, again, according to ABC Science, Um, who actually spoke out about this at a forum um, in conjunction with environmental and farming groups about the sort of privileged status that the coal companies seem to have in terms of selecting these areas without having the same restrictions that other companies that would use specific areas would get in terms of protecting native vegetation and protecting uh, pre-existing land. So there's been a lot of protest from the farmers because of the impact that this may have on the underground water and on the actual farming lands. And as a result, this committee's come forward and said that there should actually be a different system for selecting this land, that there should actually be an integrated catchment management or regional land use strategy, which is a very long phrase basically describing the fact that there needs to be a bit more communication and planning between uh, regional areas, um, regional businesses, Mm. and the businesses that are interested in doing this. But let's just give the the listeners an idea of what goes wrong here. Basically, the methane gas gets into the water supply. It permeates through the water, it dissolves, so that what the farmers in the Gasland documentary were showing is they could turn on the tap and put a lighter to the water and it would catch fire because of the methane trapped inside that comes out. Really? Yes. Oh, gosh. And it's not really safe to drink, so it's it's not great to be around. And it's explosive gas, so it's not safe yeah. at all, really. Especially not if you're mining it in a suburb within a city, I suppose. Exactly. And the place they're looking at doing it is St. Peter's in Sydney. Now, St. Peter's is an inner west suburb not far away from the CBD, maybe 10 minutes by train Mm. from the CBD at the most. 
It's not too far away from the studios either. It's not very far away at all, and it's highly populated. And if they're going to be digging, well, they're talking about 100,000 holes. Now, with... 100,000 holes? Yes. What are the sizes of these holes? Well, I don't know the size of the holes. I know they're drilling, so I don't know how wide they are. But the important thing is the percentage of things going wrong. So they've got like a percentage of error. And the thing is, even if it was like 1%, you're doing 100,000 holes. That's 1,000 going wrong. Mm. So I don't have the figures. It's been a while since I've, I've read about the St. Peter's one in particular. But it didn't look very safe. If I was living in the blocks of flats that surround the park that they want to do the drilling in, I would not be very happy about it at all. And what you know, the residents are, in fact, protesting and rallying, uh, mm. lobbying to try and have it stopped on environmental yeah. grounds. There has been response as well from the oil and gas industry group, and they're saying that the water supplies don't get affected and that they're happy with the, the levels that have been detected there anyway. But they don't um, live there. <laughs> They're basically happy with how the process has been going with Queensland so far. Frack, baby, frack. Look at me still talking when there's science to do. Then I look up there, it makes me glad I'm not you. I've experiments to run, there is research to be done on the people who are still alive. And believe me, I am still alive. I'm doing science and I'm still alive. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. You can send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. And tell us your thoughts, feelings and stories. If you'd like to be on radio and you live in Sydney, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Mick Cavazzini and Patrick Ruby. Diffusion has been produced in the studios of 2SCR in Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.